because what I'm about to say really, uh, uh, I'm just going to tell you a logistical point, but it will make a point about uh, the human spirit. You know, when in those last 10 minutes of our sitting, when people are mentioning their father or their mother or their brother or their son or their daughter, in various situations of, uh, of challenge or of tension in their lives or sometimes of, of really dire things. Uh, and then uh, often they mention and often they say for so-and-so and so-and-so, may they be sustained in their, uh, in their ability to be with this. Does it not come up in you the impulse to say amen to that, does it not? Or some that may it be so, uh, you know, you feel like you, you want to respond to it. No? Yes? No? You do. Uh, <laughs> and we don't have a form uh, uh, that exactly does that, you know, may it be so, or amen. Uh, it wouldn't be a terrible thing if we took that up as a as a practice, it might muddle it because then maybe we'd have to say amen every time. And then da, 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 da. Maybe it's fine. Maybe it's fine to do it just the way we're doing it. And let's do it this way. Let's assume that everyone is thinking amen. Okay? <laughs> then, then it removes the difficulty of deciding is this or is this not an amen moment. <laughs> okay. So I've been thinking and thinking all morning about I have so many things I want to tell you about. And the only thing I've been doing is shuffling around how I want to tell them to you. Um, so I'll tell you why I am shuffling these particular things around. We have been talking about the paramitas and bringing up to speed the people who are here for the first time. Paramita it means a virtue who, that has been brought to completion, a fully developed virtue in the uh, earliest Buddhist uh, texts, there are ten paramitas listed. And the legend about them is that the Buddha is, was said to have perfected all of these uh, virtues, generosity and honesty and renunciation and patience, before his lifetime as Siddhartha Gautama, in which he was enlightened. I also think to myself, you could say it the other way around, that a, a, a mind in which there is awakened understanding about the situation in this, in this existence and really about how challenging it is for everyone, the more we see clearly the truth of suffering in this life, the more those virtues, I think, become cultivated spontaneously in us or arise spontaneously in us just in response to us seeing clearly No, I, I, was, I was hesitating there because I just this morning, I just this morning was reading the uh, either last week or the week before New Yorker, and there's a cartoon in it that I'll describe to you, and it made me very uneasy. It's a, it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's not funny. It's, uh, it's one of those things that catches you off guard, and then you think this shouldn't be a cartoon. It's not funny, but. Maybe it's meant to do something, or maybe it's funny for some people. Um, anyway, here's the cartoon. Uh, you probably can't see it from so far, but there's a man and a woman walking along a public beach, and there's a 
huge beached whale on the beach. If you could look at it closely, it's so sad. It, it cracks me up. There's this huge beached whale looking at these two people coming with such sad eyes. And you can see that it's alive because its tail is moving a little bit. And it's just looking over with eyes. And one of these people is saying, damn, he's seen us. Now we'll have to act all compassionate. That's <laughs> terribly sad, isn't it? It's terrible. It's, I, I saw this thing and it broke my heart. And I thought, is this supposed to be funny? Is this, is this what's current humor, kind of humor that's uh, sardonic or, uh, or I don't know what it's, uh, maybe it's mocking something, but uh, the, that kind of grittiness that says, oh, fooey, here comes this and this, now we'll have to look all, could be a whale, it could be a homeless person, it could be a, a pediatric cancer ward. But imagine someone saying in a pediatric cancer ward, damn, now I'm going to have to look compassionate. Or you come across a car accident. We don't say that. We feel that. That's what regular human beings feel. If they're not confused, if they're not distraught, if they're not completely preoccupied in something else. A friend of mine, and put this away, I don't like it. <laughs> I brought it along because I don't know what to do with it. And I was, I'm a little bit dismayed about, is this a, a sign of our culture? May it not be. Amen. Uh, you know, that, uh, uh, a friend of mine whom I met, in, in the, I, I went to Los Angeles over the weekend. In the airport, I met a friend of mine who's a practitioner. Uh, we had 20 minutes for talking. And uh, he was saying to me, you know, this happened to me yesterday. He, uh, he said, I, I, was in my, uh, I was in my health club and uh, uh, walking along and the, just passing by the door of the sauna, I guess, or, the, or the, 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 the door that leads to the room with the sauna in it. Anyway, a woman burst out of there looking very bad, looking like she couldn't catch her breath with her eyes wide open, kind of staggering. Kind of, you know, really, uh, clearly in a in, in huge distress, and he said, she just came past me, and I reached out, and I and I took her arms, and I said, sit down right where you are, and he said, I sat down right next to her, and put my arm on her back, and I said, take a breath, take another breath, take a long breath. He said, I sat next to her, I breathed. He said, and I kept my eyes closed. I just was feeling her sitting, and I could feel her start to breathe. And six breaths later, and then I opened my eyes, and I looked at her, and she looked at me, and she said, much better. I had a panic attack in the, in the, in the sauna. And he said to me, I have no idea why I did that. She was there. I didn't think, hmm, what should I do now? Should I call the authorities? Should I call them? I, actually, when he told me the story about the woman burst out and couldn't breathe, I thought, 911. But he didn't do that, you know? Just sit down, take a breath, take another breath, take another breath. He has more equanimity than I do, I think. <laughs> I'm pretty sure of it. I know him well. He's an intimate of mine. 
And maybe if she hadn't gotten better, then you do 911, but it'd be 30 seconds later. It'd be all right. But he said, I, you know, he said, the whole thing happened, and I didn't have a single thought about it. It just happened. I did it. Uh, and he actually started to cry a little bit. And, he'd, and uh, he said, it's, uh, and I said to him, uh, I'm so moved by the, um, the, 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 I am so touched always, and, the, and this is immediate, because I know you and I love you, with the truth of the immediacy of compassion if we're, play, if we're paying attention. If we pay attention, compassion is immediate. That's anywhere. You go by an accident on the freeway as you're driving. Uh, that, that's become quite important to me. Sometimes when the, the, the freeway is all of a sudden blocked up and I'm going to be late for something and I think, hmm, you know, you have a moment of irritation in the mind about, hmm, might be late. I think to myself, hmm, might be an accident on the highway here. So you don't know. May who's ever involved in this be all right. May this be all right. What's the worst? For me, the worst for me is I'll be late. Could be a lot worse for somebody else further down the road here. But that, the, the, what's so touching to me always, to him and to me, is that we are really, as human beings, compassionate animals. What are you going to say? I'm going to put a different spin on that, Katie. And it could be that actually many, many, many of us do look away. And at least these people are going to deal with it, even if they're acting, you know, acting compassionate, at least they're going to do something to deal with it. I mean, it's, it's, I think that too many of us are looking, I mean, you know, if we really had to look at all the horrific stuff in the world, we'd go nuts. Okay, so for those of you who didn't hear, uh, Susan is saying those, her take on the cartoon means, okay, we're going to do something about it. I love that. That's such a kind take on the cartoon. <laughs> I had a more irritated take on the cartoon. You're kinder than I am, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> but uh, I, I, the end of what you said is we're so preoccupied. Um, I, I, everything, I, I, I was going to go right ahead, but now I'm thinking about one more thing I have to tell you. We are so preoccupied. Somewhere in the course of this, this time together, I want to say to you, not only the thing that I just said, that I think that we are... Uh, naturally compassionate animals. But when we're not, it's because we're preoccupied or self-absorbed, which is the same as preoccupied, or overloaded with stimuli so that in the middle of a world that we could respond to with compassion, uh, we're blind to what needs response. I, this seriously happened. I want to say this in a sweet way because I... I, I it was funny and it's sad also. I flew to Los Angeles and we land. And you know how people stand up right away, even though it's going to take a while to get out of the plane. <laughs> but everybody stands They're so glad to be on the ground and stopped and stand up. So everybody stands up and you're in the aisle and you get your stuff down from the, from the overhead bin and you stand there. Maybe three, four minutes before you can start to make your way forward. So I looked down, and five or six people ahead of me, I noticed there's a couple, a man and a woman in this case, and they're kissing in a sweet way, not in a, 
uh, a way that would make you uncomfortable, but you know, in a sweet way. <laughs> Kissing on the mouth. And you know, I have a few thoughts like my grandmother would have said, mm, but I wasn't saying that, you know, I, th I thought it was sweet. I thought it was sweet. Kissing, kissing, kissing. And then I noticed that he's got earphones in both ears. So, you know, he's listening to his iPod while kissing, kissing, kissing. And so I think, wait a minute, you know. And then, uh, then, then she said something to him, and he had to take out the, one of the earphones to hear what she was saying. And they talked. And I thought, that's kissing. Was he, he wasn't halfway there. He was, you know, half of him was kissing her. The other half was listening to the iPod. And I thought it was so weird, you know. that. Uh, and then in front of me, this man had just stood up. And we didn't just get off the plane. There were maybe two or three minutes while we stood. So the two or three minutes, he whips out his novel that he's reading, gets to the right page. He's standing, holding his suitcase, holding his coat, and reading the novel, lest he spend two minutes without input, like the guy with the headphones and the guy with the novel. And I think that we've become so addicted to input from telephone, and everybody else is on their cell phone. There's not like a moment without input from somewhere. So who knows, all kinds of calamities. You know, that it, for my friend to see this woman stagger out of that place and say, sit down right then, okay. But he, if he had been on his iPod and looking the other way, maybe she would have staggered out and he wouldn't have seen her. You know, how much do we miss? The iPod is a, is a, is a metaphor for all the things that preoccupy our mind and keep all the... Eat all our all our wiring going, so that we don't see what it is out there that the beached whales and everything else that we could respond to, and that mindfulness. Aha! We're going to get into the lesson. Good, <laughs> just in time. Uh, that that mindful that actually what mindfulness means is being present here for what's happening here. So you could say, well, be a person with the iPod is being present for the music. That I, this is not a thing about iPods. I mean, I fly, I have the iPod, and when I close my eyes and I'm in the plane, I'm flying, I'm listening to the iPod, I'm completely there with the music and listening to the iPod. It's not a problem about that. The thing with this guy is he's got the iPod, he's getting out of the airplane, he's juggling luggage, and he's kissing his partner at the same time. That's a lot of input happening at the same time, which I think really um, dulls the capacity of attention to notice what really could use some response here. And I wanted to talk about, um, I wanted to talk about the last of the paramitas. Last week we talked about wisdom. It's uh, If anybody does not have a paramita sheet, then our trusty monitors will give them one right now, and you'll see that the last of the, the last of the ten paramitas is equanimity. And you'll also see that I love equanimity because it, uh, I made up this chart, by the way. I'm very proud of it. I made it up about ten years ago, so it would look like a kind of a chemical flow sheet. If you do this and you add that, it comes to this, and this, this potentiates the reaction, and this is the result. 
the practice of equanimity, which I'm going to tell you somebody's Christmas Day practice just in a minute, uh, develops the habit of accepting, which you'll hear in her story, where, by experiencing the happiness of impartiality by paying attention to the whole truth of every moment, practicing wise mindfulness, which is a balancing practice of the mind. Somebody told me yesterday, it was such a good way of putting it. Somebody who's a longtime practitioner, she said, I'm beginning to feel that, um, she was telling me about a, a teaching that she had had from Ajahn Amaro some weeks ago. She said, I'm just now getting it. I'm beginning to feel that in my life I go along and then all of a sudden it's, there's a challenge. And it's like, I feel in my mind, honestly, I see two roads that I can go. Something happens and it ruffles my spirit with my partner, with my work affiliate, with my children, with something. Uh, and I see there's two ways. There's the part of go with the peeve and go with the irritation and make a deal out of it. And there's the part of choose peace and work out a solution. Like this is the road to happiness and this is the road to suffering. And she said, more and more, I see all of a sudden, whoops, here we are in a crossroads. And what she was telling me is, she said, it's really interesting, you know, you would think that everybody says, well, no, you know, this is not a big problem. You choose the road to happiness. She says, you watch the mind. She says, I watch my mind perversely wanting to have a little fight here before it chooses the road to happiness. You know? It's like, I'll just have a little fight and tell them how I feel. Then I'll choose the road to happiness. It's extremely perverse. Anybody ever has that? You know that? So she said, my practice now is trying to avoid that detour on the way to that choice. Well, why don't I tell you this? Why don't I tell you the story? Because we're just looking at... Oh, so this is by... The, here is the practice of equanimity. Develops the habit of accepting. And remember before when I said the mind, um, the mind at uh, balance, at, at mindful point, is it doesn't mean it likes what's going on or it wanted what was going on. It's the mind that says, you know, this is what's going on. What should I do next? But in that moment is not tensed up either needing for it not to be there or needing for it to be there more. It just is a sign. It's not about liking or not liking. It's a sign about keeping tension out of the mind so that the next moment can be a choice that comes out of wisdom. I really could talk a long time about mindfulness is the same as wisdom, is the same as equanimity, is the same as liberation, that they're all really the, so close to each other in the mind stays clear enough to remember what's true, that things change all the time, that uh, there's a causality to what happens. Things don't happen accidentally. Oh, here it says it in the, in the third in the third column. So here, the second column, it develops that accepting by experiencing the happiness of impartiality, the happiness of wise mindfulness, in other words. And it is supported by intuiting, intuiting, and acknowledging that this is a lawful cosmos. You know, I wrote that down to mean that things are how they are because of other things doesn't mean that it's pleased or not pleased. Things happen because other things happen. And, other, and everything happens because, everything has, because of everything that's always happening. There's distal karma and 
Proximal, proximal karma. We'll talk a little bit about that right away. Doesn't mean it's a cosmos that always develop, delivers what we want. It means it delivers the only thing it can deliver. This is the only moment that can be happening. Sometimes I get that, and sometimes I really, really get it. You know, and when I really, really get it, you know, my, my mind is much calmer. This is a lawful cosmos, just and comforting in de dependability. Understanding karma, cause and effect, and interdependence. So when you say, what does a bit of say? These are the things that get, set you free. Clearly seeing that everything is changing circumstance, that the changing circumstances are directed by forces, cause and effect, and that the imperative that things be other than what they are is what is suffering. It doesn't cause suffering, it is suffering. The imperative itself is suffering. Things are what they are. It has nothing to do with passivity. It has nothing to do with not making a change in the world. It has to do with saying, well, this is not a mistake. Now what should I do next? I may need to take some strong action, improve, improve the situation. I, th I was thinking this morning of all those years of cartoons of people looking for gurus on mountaintops to ask the question, what's the meaning of life? And I think it's the wrong question. But the question really, I mean, it's, it's philosophically it's an interesting question, but it's never com been compelling to me. Uh, the question that's compelling to me is, how will we live this life? Inevitably challenging in a way that's uh, leading to happiness in a way that feels fulfilling, in a way that when we're dying, we feel that our lives were good. Whether or not we finished them or didn't, we had long lives or short lives, whether we feel integrity, whether we feel proud of ourselves. Proud not in the sense of, wow, I was a terrific, but proud in the sense of I lived up to myself as a decent human being. That's what I think it means. And I and it and all of that stuff ends up as compassion um, for oneself, for everyone else. We see that we are all really subject to the um, the the karma of unfolding. We don't know what's going to happen next to anyone. Might be some great fortune, some ill fortune. You can't tell. That has nothing to do. It's com and my, my sense is that it's completely impersonal. Uh, when I first came across Dharma as a serious, uh, karma as a serious Dharma student, I'd only heard about it in the sense of, uh, uh, well, you know, what goes around comes around and you can do this and you'll get that and then the next life, if not in this one, which has never resonated with me as much as things happen in this world just because of that, just because it's a world with stuff in it. Let me tell you three stories. Well, this is a story. This is, a, this is the practice that my friend told me, so I like it. We'll do it while we still have this chart in the hand. She told me about an equanimity practice that she does on, um, on Christmas Day. She said, you know, I'll see, I'll see how well I can tell the story, more or less, as she told it to me. She said, you know how it is on Christmas Day 
where you get up early in the morning and the house is dark and it's exciting because you have all those packages wrapped with all that wrapping that you've put a lot of in, in interest and care into and you're all excited. And then everybody gets up and everybody opens everything and maybe they like most of it, but maybe it isn't exactly what people wanted or it's not totally what they wanted. She says, it's never totally what anybody wants. Uh, I see everybody is more or less. Uh, it's not as great, nor do people often appreciate uh, the, the effort that you must have put into to get this particular gift, or to assemble it, or to wrap it. You know, that, wow, this wrapping is fantastic. Whoops, the wrapping is off, and it's in a pile of, of clutter on the floor. She said there was a time that that was upsetting to her. She said her current practice now is to expect that and to rejoice in her family that they're together and that they get up and that they open their presents. They do what they do and they like what they like and it is how it is. She said, and then everybody goes off. Uh, they have breakfast and everybody goes off to spend the day as they do. Go to a friends, football games, whatever happens on Christmas Day. Uh, and she said, then I'm alone in the house. And my practice is to go around and clean up all over the place. And I do it slowly and as a meditation. And I pick up all the papers and I fold them very carefully. And I pick up the ribbons and I tie them up and save what I can. And the whole time I do it just as a, as a ritual act. This is the end of the ritual of planning and shopping and giving presents. And he said, I don't have a moment of ill will during that whole thing. And if I had a moment of ill will, I'd stop and I'd think about how much I love the person that I had given that present to, and it would go away. And then I continue my folding and rolling up the ribbons and putting it away. And she said, it's such an unrushed and pleasant, aesthetically pleasing experience for me. I have all this beautiful paper and all this ribbon and string. I save what I can and I keep what I can. That I look forward to that part of Christmas morning as much as the earlier, more hectic part of Christmas morning. She said, it's my Christmas Day meditation. So I thought to myself, that's a great story to tell about people say, how do you do an equanimity meditation? Well, when you do it as a sitting meditation on a retreat, you say, uh, you say things like, every individual is heir to their own karma. You say something like that because every individual is heir to their own karma. It doesn't mean you'll get yours in some sort of a nasty way from, from what you did. It means things unfold lawfully. But I thought, don't you think that's a brilliant kind of a turnaround of what might be a potentially irritating and disappointing situation? Make it into an equanimity meditation. <coughs> Just putting all this stuff away, not expecting other. So she said, if I expect that, that, then in the morning we'll have that, and in the afternoon I'll have the folding paper meditation, which I enjoy so much. I said, you know, the important part of that story is the awareness my mind could take that, you know, I just said you come to a fork in the road, and this is the fork that goes to happiness, and this is the fork that goes to suffering. And it's that awareness, my mind has the possibility of making a wrong turn here, but I won't. 
by design. I'll do this other one. There is nothing to be gained by taking that wrong turn. So I wanted to talk about that, that particularly that, that uh, meditation at that point because it's, it's really a practice in mindfulness which I think sustains uh, equanimity, which sustains wisdom. And, and there were two other things, that, stories that I wanted to tell you. So let me think what order I want to tell you them in. Oh, before when I said um, um, the wisdom that the Buddha said we were supposed to discover, and often people think about discovering it in a meditative state. I think in the story I just told, in many of the stories that we told, you were supposed to be thinking some people had a homework. Who did the homework? Okay. I'll, I'll tell you the homework. So you get a chance. When you say it to people who did the homework, everybody says, oh, because they didn't do it. So at the end of today, I see we probably won't have time to do the homework today, but I'll tell you the homework again. You can do it for next week. So we get a, an extension on the homework. Um, uh, it's, but that the, the wisdom that accrues, we could get it while sitting on a pillow in a meditation hall. Everything's changing. It changes according to conditions much bigger than my plans. I can fight with it, which would cause suffering, or not, which wouldn't cause suffering. And it's that way for everyone. It's that way for everyone. And there's a great deal of pain given that part of the change involves always loss. When things change, they're not the same. Sometimes things change for the better. People get sick and they get well, but there's change. But a lot of times, the change that we have to really deal with that are, that's hard to accept is a change that's a loss. And that when we see a, an accident on a highway, and we don't know the people, uh, but something grievous has happened to them, we feel badly for the people that will be missing them, whose lives will never be the same, even we don't know them. And the Chilean miners that get rescued, we feel good for them, even though we don't know them. And how you don't know the, the, third, the third of those, uh, of those three things that the Buddha said, things are changing, suffering is struggling or not, and they change because of the change is lawful, it has conditions, but you never know what the conditions are. There, were, uh, there was a miner down in the mine who wasn't supposed to be down there that day. He was filling in with, for somebody else. There was another miner who was supposed to be down in the mine who wasn't there that day. That's always true. There were people in the World Trade Center who never were there before, who were there on one day's business. There were people who were stuck in taxi cabs who came late to work. You don't know. Uh, the, um, you don't know what, what thing that you do or don't do is going to make the difference. You know what piece of, uh, a, a, a piece of Shakespeare has been going through my mind in the last couple of weeks, it was, uh, I don't know what had happened that I thought of that, but uh, thinking about proximal and distal karma. Do you know the line about the end of uh, Richard III, 
uh, where uh, Aunt Richard is defeated at Bosworth Field, uh, and he cries out, my horse, my horse, my kingdom for a horse, because his horse goes down. And the verse that comes around it is, for the want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For the want of the shoe, the, the horse was lost. For the want of the horse, the rider was lost. For the want of the rider, the battle was lost. For the want of the battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a horseshoe nail. You know? That's one of those, and it's a, it's a piece of, of, of Shakespeare that probably more people know than any other. It's become really one of those pieces of things that people say, you never know what small thing you get in this carriage and not that carriage. You, you stand here or not there. You don't know. Every day we make a million decisions. I'll cross the street. No, I'll cross the other way. You cross here and then there's a big accident over there. You don't know what small thing is then going to set off a chain of things. So you could say, well, you can't ever go out of your house. You know, it's, very, you know, it's a dreadful world. But you can't stay in your house either because you could have an earthquake under it or a plane could land in it. The point that we, I think, are all wired to try to avoid thinking about is that life is finite and you don't know when it's going to end. That's the, like the big news for everybody. Uh, seriously, William Saroyan, when he was dying, the writer William Saroyan, said, I knew that everybody dies, but I never thought it was going to happen to me. <laughs> Most people feel like that. It's a, it's a weird thing. We can't conceive of our own end. But the question is not what's the meaning of life or how shall I stay alive forever, but how shall I lead this temporal life in a way that is fulfilling to me, makes a difference to me, makes me feel complete, makes a difference in the world so that I'll feel complete. So I wanted to read to you. Uh, someone read this to me. Uh, uh, actually, she had, it, was a, it was a very interesting weekend in Los Angeles. I went down there to be part of a book uh, literary event, but, but I, uh, it was on, which was very interesting. But um, uh, around the edges, I met people, and one person reminded me of uh, a, uh, a, ki uh, uh, a kind of um, dictum of advice called desiderata. You know that? Do you remember when everybody had a big desiderata <laughs> on their wall? Who had a big thing of it on their wall in the 60s? I did. Everybody did. There's a myth about it. The myth was it was, uh, I found that out from Wikipedia yesterday, that it's a myth. The myth was that it was found in a Boston church in 1692 and is centuries old of unknown origin. It is, in fact, written in 1920, uh, copyrighted in 1927 by lawyer Max Ehrman, uh, who lived in Terre Haute, Indiana. Um, and then it was it showed up in somebody else's uh, anthology, mis uh, mis uh, represented, and people. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it was written in uh, 1906 or 1920 or 1692, or the Buddha could have written it, because this morning I went through my little handy teachings of the Buddha. Uh, 
in Little Bite's book. And just because as I read it, I thought, you know, this is Buddha Dharma. And it's Buddha Dharma because all of wisdom is wisdom. There isn't Buddhist wisdom and Episcopalian wisdom and Jewish wisdom. Wisdom is wisdom. And we have different traditions that say it in different ways, but not so different. So listen to this and see if I had told you that uh, apart from the, the doesn't sound exactly in the style that the Buddha spoke, but the Buddha could have said, see what, you, see what resonates in you as your favorite paragraph also. Go placidly amid the noise and haste and remember what peace there may be in silence. As far as possible without surrender, be on good terms with all persons. Speak your truth quietly and clearly and listen to others, even to the dull and the ignorant. They, too, have their story. Avoid loud and aggressive persons. They are vexations to the spirit. If you compare yourself with others, you may became, become vain and bitter. For always there will be greater and lesser persons than yourself. Enjoy your achievements as well as your plans. Keep interested in your own career, however humble. It is a real possession in the changing fortunes of time. Exercise caution in your business affairs, for the world is full of trickery. But let this not blind you to what virtue there is. Many persons strive for high ideals, and everywhere life is full of heroism. Be yourself. Especially do not feign attend affection. Neither be cynical about love, for in the face of all aridity and disenchantment, it as it is as per, it is as perennial as the grass. Take kindly to the counsel of the years, gracefully surrendering the things of youth. Nurture strength of spirit to shield you in sudden misfortune. But do not distress yourself with imaginings. Many fears are born of fatigue and loneliness. Beyond the wholesome discipline, be gentle with yourself. You are a child of the universe. No less than the trees and the stars, you have a right to be here. And whether or not it is clear to you, no doubt the universe is unfolding as it should. Therefore, be at peace with God, whatever you conceive him to be. And whatever your labors and aspirations in the noisy confusion of life, keep peace in your soul. With all its sham, drudgery, and broken dreams, it is still a beautiful world. Be cheerful. Strive to be happy. Hmm. Bada mm. <laughs> so I, I could have read the whole of this book. Let's see. Uh, let's do the one about better or worse. This is um, this is from the Sutta Nipata, the Buddha speaking. Do not form views in the world through either knowledge, virtuous conduct, or religious observances. Likewise, avoid thinking of oneself as either being superior, inferior, or equal to others. 
The wise let go of the self and being free of attachments, they are not dependent on knowledge, nor do they dispute opinions or fix on any view. Let's read a little bit from, uh, here's another superior and inferior. One who thinks oneself equal to others or superior or inferior, for that very reason disputes, but one who is unmoved under those three circumstances, for that person the notions equal, superior, and inferior do not exist. The sage for whom the notions equal and unequal do not exist, would he say, this is true, or with whom should he dispute, saying this is false? With whom should he enter into a dispute? An accomplished person does not by philosophical view or by thinking become arrogant, for he's not of that sort. Not by holy works, nor by tradition is he led. He's not led into any of these resting places of the mind. For one who is free from views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about in the world annoying people. <laughs> That's from the Sutta Nipata, also the Buddha talking. Let's see what other ones we want to see that, that echo that. Whatever people do, do you remember there was a line in this that said, whatever anybody does, be pleased with your work. Everybody's work is important. Uh, whatever people do, whether they remain in the world as artisans, merchants, or officers of the king, or retire from the world and devote themselves to a life of religious meditation, let them put their whole heart into their task. Let them be diligent and energetic. And if, like the lotus flower, which grows out of muddy water but remains untouched by the mud, they engage in life without cherishing envy or hatred, if they live in the world not a life of self but a life of truth, then surely joy, peace, and bliss will dwell in their mind. That's also a piece of what the Buddha said. Maybe this will be the last one. Sounds like desiderata, isn't it? That's, this is the Buddha. This it says, the Buddha taught, do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not yet come. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, the practitioner dwells in stability and freedom. We must be diligent today. To wait until tomorrow is too late. Death comes unexpectedly. How can we bargain with it? The sage calls a person who knows how to dwell in mindfulness day and night, one who knows the better way to live alone. Let's see if I understand that one. See, to live in mindfulness day and night, I wonder if I would end it to live alone. I think, how am I going to edit the Buddha? That's really, that, that's really the height of hubris. It seems to me that the person who dwells in day and night in mindfulness doesn't live alone, that the self disappears 
and they live completely in connection with all of the universe and everyone in it. And compassion is spontaneous. It's a spontaneous, um, it's a spontaneous action of the mind. I, 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 well, whatever I had to say, I'll say next week. Uh, but um, one of the, the the image that came into my mind just then was uh, some years ago. Those of you who have not been on retreat uh, know that we have a uh, we have a, a kind of um, retreat behavior that we do. We tell people don't talk to each other. Uh, you, know, you sit next to each other for a week or ten days, but don't talk to each other. Keep custody of your eyes. You don't have to be weird, but don't be looking for people. Leave them a sanctity of space for their own experience. Don't leave notes on their zafu. Don't touch them. Don't hug them. Just leave them alone. Uh, and they'll leave you alone. And it's a real pleasure in being uh, by yourself together in a company of friends. It's very sustaining. You get to feel very intimate with that group of people. You know how they sit and how they walk and what they eat and and you begin to feel really like they've become your family. And at one point um, in a retreat, I was sitting up in front and everybody's sitting quietly, a big room full of people. And all of a sudden, I hear crying in the back of the room. And people, when they weep, they, they usually, people weep, not, it's not unusual, but they usually try to weep very quietly so as not to get in everybody else's space. But this was enough, it wasn't huge, but it was enough that I heard it sitting in front. And uh, so I opened my eyes to see what's happening. And I see in the back row, sitting on chairs, uh, there's a woman who is weeping. In fact, let's say she's over here, uh, the weeping woman, and I'm the woman next to her. And I know both of these women because I've met them in interviews on retreats. And I know because I've met them both in interviews that they have nothing to do, they don't know each other, they're, they're not sisters or cousins. I mean, they're, they're people who were most likely unknown to each other at, all the while they were sitting on their seats, although they were sitting on, they had chosen those seats to sit on. Uh, and here's a woman crying and here's this woman sitting. And I open my eyes and I watch. And uh, at, at one point, this woman sitting without even opening her eyes, took her hand and put it on the arm of the woman next to her and just left it there for 10 or 15 seconds and then took it away. Didn't even look over into her, just put her hand on her and brought it back. And I thought that was wonderful. You know, I give those same rules about don't touch, don't intrude in other people's space. Unless you do. Unless there's a time to do it. Unless there's a time to do it. And there's a time to do it. It's not any different from my friend putting his arms around the woman coming out of the sun and say, sit down, take a breath. It's what people do when other people are distressed and when we have enough presence of mind. You know, it's an excellent phrase. I haven't thought about it. Because we don't usually, except when we say he had the presence of mind to take his foot off the brake so he didn't skid, or he had the presence of mind. 
but we don't use it in a lot with, uh, he had the presence of mind to be able to respond in uh, uh, the most automatic of compassionate and therefore supportively healing ways. I've, I think sometimes when people say, what's the best thing that's ever happened to you about um, from all your years of practice, I've been in the habit in recent years of saying, uh, I've become kinder. I actually think that's true. You know, uh, I, 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 I think I've always been a fairly kind person. People think of me as that. But I have become kinder, and I like that about myself because I catch sooner, not when I'm unkind particularly to myself, which I was most unaware of. And I'm more kind to other people because I sense faster than I used to. So, but, so that, that's what I think about my practice. I'm getting kinder. But maybe, so I, I sometimes say that the, the, the best thing about my practice that I'm most pleased with is that I've become kinder. I think maybe I, I, I'm adding to that. The best thing about it is I've become so appreciative of how marvelous human beings are, how heroic they are. They get up every morning and do another life, another day, in spite of every vulnerability. They don't stay home. They're courageous. We always want more. And, and they are empathic. They reach out and they put their arm on the person next to them in every one of the metaphorical ways that you could think of. That's the metaphor. They put their arm on the person next. We support each other. I like it that it's the end of all the paramitas. Should I tell you the homework for next week, lest you do it? Try to do the homework because then it could be you talking a little bit more, not just me. And it's our last time together. I'll talk, but you, you'll talk too. So, do you know I told you I told you two stories today, three at least that happened to me. Ordinary stories. My friend so and so met a woman coming out of a sauna. Uh, I told you the story of the guys plugged in with his earphones and kissing that I learned from. That I'm not making fun of that guy. I learned something. I said, wow, look what we're doing to ourselves. I told you the story about how someone folds her Christmas wrapper. There are stories happening a million times a day. The person who I, I went in a coffee shop this morning who said, that's a great necklace. She didn't have to say that. But I felt so good when she said that. That's, that it's, everything is a lesson. Everything is a lesson in what supports, if, if the question is not what's the meaning of life, but how are we going to do it? Wisdom is the answer. And these are all man wisdom stories. One of the answers is we'll touch each other. Saying that's a great necklace is the same as putting your hand on somebody's arm. It just holds up the day a little bit better. It's the same as saying in an abbreviated version, life is very difficult for everybody. Let's not go into our difficulties. That's a great necklace. Uh, you know, and thank you so much. There's ways that we hold each other up just because we're in the world in decent ways. So everybody between now and next week, make a story. Everyone is a storyteller. Our whole lives are stories. Our whole lives are stories. We, we relate to each other in stories. 
If people say, how are you? We tell them a story about something. Come with a story. If, you, if you're going to forget it, write it on a 3 by 5 card. You don't have to give it in. You're not going to collect the stories. But you'll remind yourself of the parts of the stories so that... When we, don't you think it'd be fun if we told each other wisdom stories? It'd be like, it'd be like a Thanksgiving party, an early Thanksgiving party. Okay, let's sit for three seconds until I find this because it's late. May all beings, may we take the teachings that we've learned, may we take the sentiment in our heart and our mind at this moment and cultivate it and recognize it in our mind, welcome it in our mind, bring it to as many of our moments of our lives as we can so that we share it with other people, so that we spread it in our families, in our partnerships, in our communities, in our world, so that all beings can be touched by compassion and kindness and sustained through the challenges of their lives. May all beings be accompanied by kindness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.